Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Radio Westeros, episode 49. The Maester's Collar. Spoilers all books! Crescent's fingers went to the chain about his neck, each link forged from a different metal, each symbolizing his mastery of another branch of learning. The Maester's Collar, mark of his order. In the pride of his youth, he had worn it easily, but now it seemed heavy to him, the metal cold against his skin. And welcome to this episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere, and in this episode, we'll be diving deep into the prologue from A Clash of Kings. This prologue, revolving around the point of view of Maester Crescent, is a rather long one. And in our first section, we explore why. What information and dynamics was this chapter required to set up? And what techniques did George employ to pull this off effectively? Then we'll have a full walkthrough of the chapter, introducing a new cast of characters while progressing the prologue story. And it's not only characters being introduced in this chapter, as a curious poison named the Strangler comes into the story. Could this be groundwork for later events? Stay tuned for our Strangler section to hear what we have to say about that. Next, we'll take a look at Dragonstone itself, a gloomy, ominous island steeped in rich and fascinating history. And speaking of history will then put Maester Crescent himself under the microscope and explore what we know about his past and his long connection with House Baratheon. In this episode, we'll see why the Maester's collar grew ever heavier around Crescent's neck. Finally, we'll consider Stannis' future. We've never considered the HBO show as any kind of book canon, But what happens when the showrunners publicly claim that they got the storyline for a revelatory episode from the author himself? The lines of book canon begin to blur, and so with the author's word present, we'll be exploring the book implications related to a certain Stannis scene and how it relates to this prologue. We've left that discussion for last today in case any of you non-show watchers wish to remain unspoiled. With an advert from Dragonstone full of Halloween fright and a plethora of dramatic readings, that will be the episode today. Before I begin, we want to give thanks, as always, to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Maltude, Pepper, Whitney, Kelly, 
Rory, Laura, Daniel, John Wergarian, and Sister Winter. Many thanks to you all, and if you're interested in becoming a patron, head on over to patreon.com slash radioestros to check out our campaign, where our patrons have access to exclusive episodes, early ad-free access to all regular episodes, and receive customizable shout-outs, among other perks. Your support helps us keep Radio Westeros going during this long night. And so a huge thank you to all of our patrons, old and new. And now, it's time to get started with the Crescent Prologue. When a maester donned his collar, he put aside the hope of children, yet Crescent had oft felt a father nonetheless. Robert, Stannis, Renly, three sons he had raised after the angry sea claimed Lord Stephen. In the prologue of A Game of Thrones, we met the others, who are established as primary antagonists by the end of this chapter. However, the others have seldom been the focus of the narrative since, in spite of some of the aftermath of that chapter spilling into the preceding pages, so it's clear that the prologue from A Game of Thrones was doing the job of setting up the wider story, the story of ice and fire. The prologue of A Clash of Kings, on the other hand, was required to set up a particular book. In fact, we think that of all five of the prologues, this one does the most in terms of platforming the book it fronts, as well as setting up dynamics which will echo well into the story. In this respect, more was being asked of this chapter than any other prologue. So let's start with the characters. A Game of Thrones, as a novel, does a wonderful job of introducing a wide cast of characters into the story, yet our Dragonstone characters are barely even mentioned. The prologue chapter was therefore required to introduce an entire new cast of important characters very quickly and effectively, whilst still remaining coherent as a standalone story. George wants to introduce all of these characters rapidly but memorably in order to integrate them into the story established by the last book, and so he uses various writing techniques to do so. We can identify five techniques employed by George to provide instant character exposition. They are point-of-view opinion, mood, description, backstory, and character's treatment of the point-of-view. So as we'll see, our point of view seems like a reasonable and experienced man with his heart firmly in the right place. And so when we read, for example, that Shireen is the saddest child that Maester Crescent had ever known, we believe him. Because we trust Crescent's point of view, he can quickly help us form opinions of the surrounding cast. Next, there's mood. We'll see how the setting of Dragonstone is reflective of its inhabitants, and the general gloom about the place helps to emphasize the sadness of certain characters, or to create a contrast with Melisandre. In a line that at once underscores the appeal of the vibrant Melisandre and reinforces the sadness of characters like Shireen, Crescent thinks of his young colleague Pylos, Grim places needed lightning, not solemnity, and Dragonstone was grim beyond a doubt, a lonely citadel in the wet waste surrounded by storm and salt, with the smoking shadow of the mountain at its back. 
So we know Pylos is a solemn young man and all too in tune with the grim fortress he serves. Another method is description. The descriptions of the characters in this chapter are frequent, thorough, and often loaded with meaning. When we meet Shireen, within a single sentence, the reader feels pity, and this is precisely what George is going for when he describes a child like this. The child had her lord father's square jut of a jaw and her mother's unfortunate ears, along with a disfigurement all her own. The fool Patchface is described a little later in a way that evokes our pity, which gives an added dimension to his friendship with Shireen. He was soft and obese, subject to twitches and trembles, incoherent as often as not. And next, the unflattering descriptions of Selice and her mustache not only make her unappealing, but stand in sharp contrast to Melisandre's description as exotic, enthralling, and bright. And then we have Davos Seaworth. Again, within a sentence, a large aspect of Davos' character is conveyed by a single glance at his face. It says, He was a slight man, his low birth written plain upon a common face. And finally, there's Stannis Baratheon, who gets a detailed description containing observations such as this. His eyes were open wounds beneath his heavy brows. So the eyes being open wounds evokes a pained man, and his brows are heavy because he's weighed down. Stannis's inherent discomfort, as well as his hardness and his fortitude, are all deftly conveyed by the full description. So... Character descriptions are used in this chapter to anchor this new cast of characters in our mind with efficient haste. And the fourth technique that we find is backstory. This chapter contains numerous separate backstories, and some of them are quite thorough. As we'll see, Patchface, Davos, and Stannis are all introduced with fairly complete histories. We seldom witness so much backstory within a single chapter. And whereas descriptions and opinions might give us a rather superficial notion of the characters, backstory provides depth to those impressions. We can know that Patchface is sad and slow and sorry, but it's only when we find out why that the nature of his personal tragedy is truly conveyed and we form a larger connection with his character. By deploying backstory as a device in this chapter, George is providing a window into these characters' souls, so we leave the chapter feeling like we truly know them. In Westeros, as in real life, people are molded by their history. Here's the first portion of Patchface's backstory, which helps to shift our perception of him from a weird, useless lump to a tragic and truly sympathetic figure. Patchface had come to them as a boy. Lord Stefan of cherished memory had found him in Volantis across the narrow sea. The king, the old king, Ares II Targaryen, who had not been quite so mad in those days, had sent his lordship to seek a bride for Prince Rhaegar, who had no sisters to wed. We have found the most splendid fool, he wrote Cresson a fortnight before he was to return home from his fruitless mission. Only a boy, yet nimble as a monkey and witty as a dozen courtiers. He juggles and riddles and does magic, and he can sing prettily in four tongues. We have bought his freedom and hope to bring him home with us. Robert will be delighted with him, and perhaps in time he will even teach Stannis how to laugh. So when the passage goes on to explain Patchface's tragedy, 
we also learn that of Stannis's parents, anchoring our understanding of both fool and king. Of interest in this brief story about a secondary character, we gain the knowledge that Stannis was ever dour and solemn. Even his father knew that to be true. Davos's story provides us with more information about Robert's rebellion, his own character, and the Fortress of Storm's End, which we'll see for the first time in this volume. So altogether, these backstories provide crucial exposition, increasing our understanding and informing the narrative. And the final technique for instant exposition lies in the surrounding character's treatment of the point-of-view character. As we've said, Crescent is portrayed as a decent yet vulnerable man. As we approach the climactic scene, we'll read the character's descriptions and backstories, and then all that's needed is for us to witness their behaviors with our own eyes. A confirmation stage, if you will. We'll see just how much Solice is in the thrall of Lady Melisandre, how decent of a man the Onion Knight really is, and ask difficult questions about their lord, King Stannis. Having the characters demonstrate the essence of their character through their treatment of the central POV in this chapter is the final vital technique used to quickly characterize what is a relatively large new cast. And these five techniques used together allow George to assimilate this Dragonstone cast into the story effectively. But integrating a new cast of characters isn't the only task required of the Crescent Prologue. Dragonstone itself is introduced, and aside from being embroiled with the overall mood, as we've mentioned, it's important in a historical sense. As such, it gets some backstory treatment of its own. The description of the Painted Table begins to reveal Aegon the Conqueror's invasion of Westeros, one of the most important aspects of its history, while setting the scene for Stannis' own attack on mainland Westeros. It's clear that Dragonstone, for all its gloom, has been and will be a fortress of great significance to the story. And the inclusion of a maester as the point of view inherently leads to further exposition when we hear that a white raven has arrived to mark the end of summer. Not only is this prologue being anchored in time while marking the passage of time, along with bringing the Stark house words to mind, but we get a short history lesson as well when it tells us Ten years, two turns, and sixteen days it had lasted, the longest summer in living memory. And there's further information about life at the Citadel, which is good world-building in anticipation of A Feast for Crows, whose own prologue will introduce Old Town to us, and where a major point-of-view character will find himself arriving at the intellectual and scientific capital of Westeros, under the orders of Lord Commander Jon Snow, and we have the first mention of Grayscale, an affliction which will have significant impact on the narrative in future volumes. Overall, there was a tremendous amount of information to convey within this chapter, given that amongst all of this, George had to tell us a standalone short story. However, it all comes together seamlessly, and at the end of the day, Crescent's tragedy is a story of a desperate, aging man who tries and fails to save the person he loves like a son from what he views as a corrupting influence. This prologue functions as an exposition chapter without feeling forced or crowded, and the various backstories function as tales within the tale because they're interesting in their own right, 
Whereas a lesser writer might have left us feeling like we were reading a gigantic info dump, George manages to provide deep exposition that informs his story and engages his reader, a mark of a wonderful writer. In A Clash of Kings, the climactic moment is the Battle of Blackwater, and this prologue provides the seeds from which to grow the story of that event. And so now let's dive into our line-by-line recap analysis before coming back to some key topics in the later part of the episode. Comet's tail spread across the dawn, a red slash that bled above the crags of Dragonstone like a wound in the pink and purple sky. The maester stood on the windswept balcony outside his chambers. It was here the ravens came after long flight. Their droppings speckled the gargoyles that rose twelve feet tall on either side of him, a hellhound and a wyvern, two of the thousand that brooded over the walls of the ancient fortress. When first he came to Dragonstone, the army of stone grotesques had made him uneasy, but as the years passed, he'd grown used to them. Now he thought of them as old friends. The three of them watched the sky together with foreboding. The maester did not believe in omens, and yet, old as he was, Cresson had never seen a comet half so bright, nor yet that color, that terrible color, the color of blood and flame and sunsets, He wondered if his gargoyles had ever seen its like. A Clash of Kings begins with the prologue of Maester Cresson, which itself begins with a description of the comet. The reference to the comet immediately links us with the final chapter of the previous book, A Game of Thrones. In that chapter, Daenerys sees the same comet blazing across the Dothraki Sea, providing the final inspiration in her hatching of the dragons. It says, Danny looked and saw it low in the east. The first star was a comet burning red, blood red, fire red, the dragon's tail. She could not have asked for a stronger sign. So this phenomenon is utilized very effectively by George to provide seamless continuity between volumes and several characters' situations, supplying us with an anchor with which to gauge the timeline. After this grounding in time, the chapter itself begins to unfold. A maester stands on his windswept balcony where the ravens in service to the ancient fortress come to eat and defecate. There's evidence of the latter upon the twisted statues and gargoyles. He recalls being afraid of the grotesques at first, but now thinks of them as old friends. And so we know that he's been at Dragonstone long enough to become accustomed to this rather alien environment, and his humanization of the stone statues hints at his loneliness there. It says, The three of them watched the sky together with foreboding. The maester watches the comet with some cognitive dissonance. He doesn't believe in omens, yet he's never seen such a remarkable comet, which happens to be bright red. The situation is akin to a scientist witnessing a miracle. In that moment, the scientist would question everything they've ever known. The maester's old age is highlighted, and soon one half of his mind is wishing for the gargoyles to speak and tell him what portents in the sky they've witnessed to which the other half replies, Such folly, talking gargoyles and prophecies in the sky. I am an old done man, 
grown giddy as a child again. It's then revealed that the white raven from the citadel had arrived, signifying the end of summer, which corresponds with the sign of the comet to provide a sort of desperate confusion in the man. What does it all mean? He wanted to cry. Next, a younger maester, Pylos, is introduced, and the older man is glad that the other can't tell what's in his head. Pylos wants to show the white raven to the princess, and the use of this title is the first indication that her father has crowned himself somewhere off page. First-time readers might be forgiven for not immediately realizing exactly who that is, as he was never seen on page in the first book, but given that the setting is Dragonstone, that king, we can assume, of course, is Stannis Baratheon. And so the older maester consents to the request. He's revealed to be 79-year-old Cresson, so aged as to be frail and unsteady on his feet, having recently recovered from a shattered hip. It's revealed that Stannis had requested another maester from the Citadel to aid Cresson, but our maester realizes that Pylos was, in all likelihood, sent to replace him after his death. Cresson seems to have come to terms with the maneuver, showing the pragmatism in his character. So the picture so far is of an aging man, unsound of body, isolated on a strange island which is inhabited by people waiting for him to die. Already within just two pages, the bleak feel of tragedy is in the air. When the princess enters, her shy demeanor is juxtaposed with that of her lurching fool who accompanies her, bells ringing around his neck, tin bucket on his head, a rack of antlers strapped to the crown, the one and only Patchface. The princess is Shireen Baratheon, and this is our first glimpse of her and her fool. A detailed description of the girl is given, focusing on her resemblance to her parents, the most unfortunate bits, and the mark of grayscale that blights one side of her face. Cresson blames himself for not saving her from this affliction, and thinks of her as the saddest child he'd ever known. It's a heart-wrenching observation conveyed almost immediately following her introduction, and we instantly realize why the girl is inseparable from the ringing, lumbering goofball. Patchface's tomfoolery alleviates her sorrow and pain somewhat, if nobody else's. Grim places need lightning, thinks Cresson, although now he's thinking of Maester Pylos. The young maester is but 25 years old, yet as solemn as a man of 60, and as such he fits in well with the general mood of Dragonstone. Crescent thinks of the island's bleakness, surrounded by storm and within the shadow of a mountain. Add the gargoyles and the gloom, and we might wonder what kind of king we're going to see at this seat, and what it would be like to be his child. There's certainly a looming cloud hanging over these characters, and one can't escape the feeling that that theme will follow them through the story. Soon, Crescent thinks of the Red Woman, she who gives him restless dreams and who has an apparently disturbing influence over Dragonstone. Next, we get a description of Patchface, shuffling and hopping in that queer sideways walk of his, wearing a mock helm, quote, fashioned from an old tin bucket with a rack of deer antlers strapped to the crown and hung with cowbells. Crescent thinks that while this, quote, sorry thing may have once had the talent to provoke laughter, that had been taken from him by the sea, along with half his wits and all his memory, 
leaving him twitching, trembling, and incoherent. Now, Shireen was the only person who found him amusing, or who cared if he lived or died, given that Crescent had previously thought about people waiting for him to die. Suddenly, a strange line is drawn between these three characters, a fact not lost on the maester. An ugly little girl and a sad fool, and a maester makes three. Now there's a tale to make men weep. Shireen tells Crescent that she has dreams of dragons eating her. Three things to consider here are, first of all, Shireen might have legitimate, magical, and prophetic dragon dreams due to the Baratheon family's Targaryen heritage. Next, the dragons in such dreams aren't necessarily literal. They might represent Targaryens, or more broadly, themes of fire and blood. And finally, the fact that Shireen is shown to be plagued by such dreams might be ominous foreshadowing of some kind. And more on this topic later. Soon the Red Woman is mentioned again, and it's revealed that she's been telling Queen Selyse that the comet is dragon's breath, and as a result, fueling Shireen's frightening dreams. The web between these characters is becoming more evident as the chapter progresses. At this point, the chapter feels increasingly like a vehicle for developing a new set of characters and backstory, which indeed, in large part, it is. The storm came up suddenly, howling, and Shipbreaker Bay proved the truth of its name. The Lord's two-masted galley, Windproud, broke up within sight of his castle. From its parapets, his two eldest sons had watched as their father's ship was smashed against the rocks and swallowed by the waters. A hundred oarsmen and sailors went down with Lord Stephen Baratheon and his lady wife, and for days thereafter, every tide left a fresh crop of swollen corpses on the strand below Storm's End. The boy washed up on the third day. One of the new characters introduced to us is Patchface, jumping around foolishly with his riddles. In our Prophecy episode, we evaluated this character in the context of the wise fool trope and tried to figure out, successfully or not, the meaning behind some of his riddles and nonsense. Here he keeps repeating this line about shadows, which disturbs Shireen, who begs Crescent to make him stop. Musing on the futility of that request, we get his backstory. Taken from Volantis as a youth and coughed up by the sea three days after the shipwreck that claimed the lives of Lord Stephen and Lady Cassana Baratheon, as well as many others, he's now an incoherent fool who speaks gibberish and prophecy in equal measure. So Patchface is a bizarre byproduct and remnant of the tragedy that seems to have blighted Stannis' youth, a character who acts as a foil to Shireen and seems to contrast with the whole mood of the island and its people. Now his existence is justified by his alleviation of Shireen's loneliness, but Crescent's thoughts reveal that in those days at Storm's End long past, he had resisted calls to euthanize the sad fool, though he wonders now if Patchface had ever benefited from that decision. So, a depressing cast so far, and this even before we've been introduced to Stannis. The king is mentioned, having met with the returned Sir Davos without Crescent. The maester reflects how he used to have Stannis' ear, but now is clearly overlooked, 
As Crescent struggles with the journey to the king's chamber, we get a tour of sorts of Dragonstone. This is our first glimpse of the fortress, past home to many Targaryens and favored roosting place of their dragons. The place is at once physically and socially unfriendly to the aging maester. The struggle up the stairs to see Stannis works to symbolize the emotional distance that now exists between the two men. As he climbs, Crescent meets Davos Seaworth on the stairs, our first glimpse of a character who will shortly be given his own point of view. In the midst of the military preparations occurring in the background, Davos informs Crescent that he was correct to predict that Stannis would not get his desired support from the Stormlords, due in part to his unlovable demeanor. We learn that Davos is also unloved, although in his case it's due to his low birth. His left hand, missing fingers after the last joint on all but the thumb, was cut by none other than the man he now serves. A certain grimness is evoked in the short passage about Stannis in contrast with the mentions of his brother Renly, which follow. Davos relates that some of the Stormlords already support Renly, who is named Bryce Caron of Nightsong to his Rainbow Guard. Renly is described as loving vibrance and colors and rich fabrics, which we saw in A Game of Thrones, and Crescent reflects on his tendency to always seek the center of attention, from shouting, look at me, as a child, to making a claim to his elder brother Robert's throne and involving himself in the upcoming war. The groundwork of the Stannis versus Renly conflict is being laid, and Crescent witnesses preparations for war being undertaken in the background. As the reader sees that the brothers are vying for the same position as challengers for Joffrey's Iron Throne, the very spine of A Clash of Kings begins to come into focus. It seems Crescent had offered good counsel to Stannis, predicting that many lords would not join his cause, with the subtext being that some would side with the more palatable Renly instead. And Davos, too, seems like a valuable counselor. He's very respectful to Crescent and says he didn't sugarcoat the bad news for Stannis. We can see immediately that Davos is a strong, true, and honest character. And Crescent thinks of his backstory and perhaps his defining moment when, as a smuggler, he saved the besieged Stannis from starvation with a boat full of onions and saltfish, bravely smuggled through a naval blockade during the Siege of Storm's End. Lord Stannis and a small garrison had held the castle for close to a year against the great host of the lords Tyrell and Redwine. Even the sea was closed against them, watched day and night by Redwine galleys flying the burgundy banners of the arbor. Within Storm's End, the horses had long since been eaten, the dogs and cats were gone, and the garrison was down to roots and rats. Then came a night when the moon was new and black clouds hid the stars. Cloaked in that darkness, Davos the Smuggler had dared the red wine cordon and the rocks of Shipbreaker Bay alike. His little ship had a black hull, black sails, black oars, and a hold crammed with onions and salt fish. Little enough, yet it had kept the garrison alive long enough for Eddard Stark to reach Storm's End and break the siege. Lord Stannis had rewarded Davos with choice lands on Cape Wrath, a small keep and a knight's honors but he had also decreed that he lose a joint of each finger on his left hand to pay for all his years of smuggling. Davos had submitted on the condition that Stannis wield the knife himself, 
He would accept no punishment from lesser hands. So Stannis had offered Davos a knighthood and lands as a reward for his service, but only if he surrendered his fingers as payment for his years of smuggling. Davos responded with a condition of his own, that Stannis be the one to make the cut, refusing to take punishment from a lesser man. The story says a great deal about both men, from the driving sense of justice and pride we see in Stannis to the bravery, humility, and devotion evident throughout Davos's arc. And if you see an echo of Ned Stark's honor and sense of justice here, it's no accident. The death of the Stark patriarch late in A Game of Thrones left the story without its moral center. Davos Seaworth is introduced early in A Clash of Kings in part to fill that hole, while Stannis continues to share certain qualities with Ned, as we'll be discussing later in the episode. And so the Onion Knight is a decent, honest man, agreeable with Cresson, whose counsel is valued by the king. Why then has the old man been passed over as an advisor by Stannis? Given their long history together, age and infirmity would seem like the obvious answer, but it might not be the only one, as we'll see. As the two men talk, we're made aware of the dilemma Stannis is in. They discuss the size of his army and agree that a tilted King's Landing would be tantamount to suicide. Yet keeping a gathered military host forever in wait is also not a wise move. As the two men part, Cresson continues his great struggle to reach Stannis' chamber. And upon his arrival, we witness the magnificent painted table of Aegon the Conqueror at the center of what is undeniably a war room. Located at the top of Dragonstone's central keep, known as the Stone Drum, the chamber itself is massive, a round room with the bare black walls and narrow windows at the four compass points. It houses a 50-foot-long painted table. Nearly half that in width, the table had been made at the command of Aegon Targaryen before his conquest as a scale model of the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros. A single chair was placed where Dragonstone would be, off the east coast, to give a conqueror's eye view of the whole. Seated in the chair was Stannis Baratheon. I knew you would come, old man, whether I summoned you or no. There was no hint of warmth in his voice. There seldom was. Stannis Baratheon, Lord of Dragonstone, and by the grace of God's rightful heir to the Iron Throne of the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros, was broad of shoulder and sinewy of limb, with a tightness to his face and flesh that spoke of leather cured in the sun until it was as tough as steel. Hard was the word men used when they spoke of Stannis, and hard he was. Though he was not yet five and thirty, only a fringe of thin black hair remained on his head, circling behind his ears like the shadow of a crown. His brother, the late King Robert, had grown a beard in his final years. Maester Cresson had never seen it, but they said it was a wild thing, thick and fierce. As if in answer, Stannis kept his own whiskers cropped tight and short. They lay like a blue-black shadow across his square jaw and the bony hollows of his cheeks. His eyes were open wounds beneath his heavy brows, a blue as dark as the sea by night. His mouth would have given despair to even the drollest of fools. It was a mouth made for frowns and scowls and sharply worded commands, all thin pale lips and clenched muscles, a mouth that had forgotten how to smile and had never known how to laugh. 
Sometimes, when the world grew very still and silent of a night, Maester Cresson fancied he could hear Lord Stannis grinding his teeth half a castle away. This is the first time we see Stannis, and George pulls no punches in conveying the grim resoluteness of the man. In his solitary brooding, he's almost the embodiment of Dragonstone itself, a bleak, joyless island of a soul. We discover that Stannis never wanted this fortress, yet it seems to the reader that this is a perfectly apt seat for the man, in poetic terms at least. Continuing to be sharp with Maester Cresson, Stannis discusses brotherly dynamics. The Maester's deep understanding of these fraternal issues reminds us that there are no parents present to aid in a resolution, and perhaps the man closest to being a father is standing right there. Cresson continues to extend understanding to Stannis before urging him to make common cause with Renly against the Lannisters. We can suspect that comes, in part at least, from Crescent's fatherly instincts. Stannis's unshakable response, I will not treat with Renly, must have pained the maester's heart, and he tries instead to suggest an alliance with Starks. Again, Stannis refuses, offended by Rob Stark's crowning and seeming somewhat bitter about dead Ned being Robert's old war pal. This much is clear. Stannis is sick of his brothers. He had to live in Robert's enormous shadow for so long, and now Renly comes along and tries to steal his light just when it's his time in the sun. Crescent's counsel is decent, if futile, against Stannis's iron will, and there's a continual undercurrent of the maester genuinely caring about both Baratheon brothers as he does for Shireen. Here's a man who's lived and breathed House Baratheon for as long as he can remember, yet now he's feeling rather disposable. When he suggests Shireen should be sent to the Eyrie for safety, he finally breaks through to Stannis, who agrees that the idea is perhaps worth the thought, only for a new voice to offer sharply. Must the rightful lord of the Seven Kingdoms beg for help from widow women and usurpers? This is Selyse, Stannis's wife, and as we can soon tell, she's channeling the mysterious Red Woman. By having Selyse quickly snuff out Crescent's suggestion, George is able to convey how the maester has come to be so overlooked. He's at odds with Dragonstone's new arrival. About the Lady Selyse, it says, The Red Woman had won her, heart and soul, turning her from the gods of the Seven Kingdoms, both old and new, to worship the one they call the Lord of Light. Here are the early mentions of a mystical religion spreading its extremist thinking that begins to unfurl through the story from here on in. Stannis, though, does not seem as mesmerized as his wife, saying, Your God can keep his grace. It's swords I need, not blessings. Do you have an army hidden somewhere that you've not told me of? So here's Stannis admitting that he would pragmatically side with a mystical, cultish ideology, if only it would give him the swords that he needs to win the Iron Throne, which he perceives is rightfully his, and by the laws of the Seven Kingdoms, he does have a point. Solis tries to convince Stannis that the comet is for him, and that the Lord of Light will aid him. Stannis retorts that the many Stormlander banners have sided with Renly, to which Solis replies... But if Renly should die, 
And at this point, Cresson can no longer hold his tongue and interjects by saying such a horror should never be thought of. He begs, fratricide, my lord. This is evil, unthinkable. Please listen to me. As we all know, kinslaying is one of the highest taboos in Westeros. And given the brothers were loved by Cresson as his sons, it's no wonder that he's described as horror-struck. What's being discussed here is truly his worst nightmare. Selyse scorns Crescent's counsel, and in dismissing the maester, it's clear that Stannis is intrigued by his wife's suggestion. As Crescent struggles to the stairs, barely able to stand erect, he begs Pylos to help him in another sad moment. When he finally reaches his room, the maester wishes his fears would sail away like the ships on the bay. It says... When a maester donned his collar, he put aside the hope of children. Yet, Cresson had oft felt a father nonetheless. Robert, Stannis, Renly, three sons he had raised after the angry sea claimed Lord Stephan. Had he done so ill that now he must watch one kill the other? He could not allow it, would not allow it. And so, the notion of Cresson's fatherhood moves out from the subtext and onto the page and most parents will do anything to protect their children. The woman was the heart of it, not the Lady Selyse, the other one. The Red Woman, the servants had named her, afraid to speak her name. I will speak her name, Crescent told his stone hellhound, Melisandre, her. Melisandre of Ashai, sorceress, shadowbinder, and priestess to R'hllor, the Lord of Light, the Heart of Fire, the God of Flame and Shadow, Melisandre, whose madness must not be allowed to spread beyond Dragonstone. Cresson specifies that the Red Woman was the source of all that is wrong on Dragonstone, a woman so powerful that many are afraid even to say her name. Cresson says, Melisandre, to a statue, highlighting his ambition to be fearless in his opposition to her, whilst the gesture to a stone figure also reveals that the maester is, in fact, scared of her. It brings to mind the quote from Ned to Bran that the only time a man can be brave is when he is afraid. Cresson then vows that Melisandre's madness must not spread further into the world beyond Dragonstone. And it was the idea of kinslaying, which finally pushed him into action. His plan becomes evident immediately as he shuffles through his potion shelf until he finds a vial containing deadly purple crystals. At that moment, it says that his maester's chain felt very heavy. Cresson has spent his grown life living by codes from the Citadel as a modern doctor would live by the Hippocratic Oath, and the chain feeling heavier shows both the guilt he feels in planning a murder and the fact that he's determined to proceed regardless. This is not an easy thing for Cresson to be contemplating, and it goes against every standard he abides by. Yet the need to stop Melisandre for the greater good, for the good of his foster sons, Stannis and Renly, has outgrown his own moral convictions. The passage about the poison, named the Strangler, will be considered later, but with the means within his grasp, before long Crescent is planning the where and when of his assassination of Melisandre, as he rests in preparation for the night's feast where he would poison her. 
Crescent thinks of the comet once again. He now believes it to signify the killing of the Red Woman, the omen now sent solely for him foretelling murder. And so the root of Crescent's cognitive dissonance is emphasized further. The magical Red Woman is anathema to him, yet here he's leaning on superstition in order to gather the courage to murder her. In his desperation, superstition becomes appealing to him, where previously he would have shunned it. How many non-superstitious sports fans have crossed their fingers or touched a wooden table as their team entered the field for a big game? And how many of us curse our luck when things aren't going our way in spite of a belief in logic? Such superstitions only worsen when stakes are raised, and in writing the maester as a cynic seeking some kind of magical support due to his desperation, perhaps George is reflecting Stannis as he's considering precisely the same thing. How many swords will the Lord of Light put into my hand, he had demanded. So, due to desperation, both Stannis and Crescent are succumbing to the world of superstition and magic, albeit from different angles and situations. When Maester Crescent awakes, in preparation for the most important night of his life, time is taken to underline just how weak the old man is. This evokes the feeling that the maester is a spent man and has but few pages left in his story, and that the murder of Melisandre will be, one way or another, his final act. This sense of finality creates tension and anticipation as we head towards the ultimate scene in the chapter's climax. The tension is compounded by Crescent's lateness. He's been forgotten or overlooked and is now in a rush to get to the feast. As he rushes, his pain and discomfort serve to increase both the pace of the chapter and our sympathy for him. Arriving at the Great Hall of Dragonstone, it's noted that the doorway is set in the mouth of a stone dragon. Crescent literally steps into the mouth of a dragon when he enters the hall, a symbolic entrance in keeping with the finality that's been evoked so far. As Crescent enters the hall, our sympathies continue. Clumsy Patchface slams into him by accident, knocking his cane away before falling upon him. Crescent worries that he might have rebroken his hip, and so having Crescent's point of view makes the calamitous scene much more sad than funny. However, there's a sudden gale of laughter in the Great Hall, which informs us of the overall lack of empathy for the old man, while simultaneously reinforcing our own. And as Crescent struggles to stand, it's none other than the Lady Melisandre who helps him to his feet. Her deep voice was flavored with the music of the Jade Sea. As ever, she wore red, head to heel, a long, loose gown of flowing silk as bright as fire, with dagged sleeves and deep slashes in the bodice that showed glimpses of a darker, blood-red fabric beneath. Around her throat was a red gold choker tighter than any maester's chain, ornamented with a single great ruby. Her hair was not the orange or strawberry color of common red-haired men, but a deep burnished copper that shone in the light of the torches. Even her eyes were red, but her skin was smooth and white, unblemished, pale as cream. Slender she was, graceful, taller than most knights, with full breasts and narrow waist and a heart-shaped face. Men's eyes that once found her did not quickly look away, not even a maester's eyes. 
Our first glimpse of the Red Woman is thorough and revealing of her exotic appearance and a hint at the power that she held over the members of Stannis' household. And with that description in mind, we want to highlight the description of Stannis' wife that was given earlier in the chapter. Lady Selyse was as tall as her husband, thin of body and thin of face, with prominent ears, a sharp nose, and the faintest hint of a mustache on her upper lip. She plucked it daily and cursed it regularly, yet it never failed to return. Her eyes were pale, her mouth stern, her voice a whip. So we can see that Melisandre is everything that Selyse is not. We're certain that this is a purposeful juxtaposition between Stannis' wife and the woman who, by A Dance with Dragons, had been regularly sharing her bed with the king. Melisandre is foreign and exotic and beautiful. She embodies temptation, yearning, and lust. Selyse is, quite simply, unappealing. Melisandre is vivid and magical. Selyse is dull and uninteresting. Their differences are further compounded in their authority. Mel can lead and has a strong will, whereas Selyse is more of a follower who has proven easy to indoctrinate and is more likely to inspire annoyance than attachment, her queensmen notwithstanding. These dynamics and contrasts allow the author to form an interesting triangle between Stannis, his wife, and the Red Priestess. Even at this early stage, the reader might wonder if Melisandre's seductress aura is simply too good to be true. Is the description we're given of genuine beauty, or is the temptation being offered of a darker sort? With the hindsight of A Dance with Dragons, where Mel's use of a glamour is all but revealed, we wonder if she designed her image to be the perfect contrast with Dragonstone, maximizing her allure to the confined audience, as well as to Stannis himself. Predictably, Crescent's first reaction to her is a fear, in line with what we mentioned earlier. Soon it's demonstrated to us firsthand who holds the power in the struggle between the maester and magician. Melisandre crowns Crescent with Patchface's ridiculous antlered helm, declaring that she sees a clever fool and a foolish wise man. The room's laughter cements the humiliating moment for old Crescent as he searches for the inner strength, becoming a maester of the Citadel. Yet the humiliation continues as he realizes that young Pylos is in his seat and didn't awaken him on the orders of none other than Stannis. He told me you were not needed here, says Pylos, who at least had the decency to blush. In the paragraph that follows, a description of Stannis's bannermen is provided, and we learn that Davos Seaworth was the only one of them to meet Crescent's eye, and with pity, too. The Onion Knight's reaction to the old man's humiliation highlights that it's not only his simple attire and plain speech which make him stand out, but his capacity for empathy, which no one else in the room seems to share. And that includes Stannis, who reacts with coldness, saying, You're too ill and too confused to be of use to me, old man. These words cut Crescent so deep that for a moment he can't believe it's Stannis saying them. Stannis goes on to say that he doesn't want to see the old man kill himself in his service by long walks up the stairs, which sounds like a version of concern. And incidentally, we think the reference to Crescent killing himself is more a case of the author winking at the future than of Stannis himself being prescient. 
Cresson is, of course, wounded by his demotion and Stannis's blunt phrasing, and what follows is one of the most emotive passages in the chapter. Cresson thinks to himself, Stannis, my lord, my sad, sullen boy, son I never had, you must not do this. Don't you know how I have cared for you, lived for you, loved you, despite all? Yes, loved you, better than Robert even, or Renly, for you were the one unloved, the one who needed me most. So here the concept of Cresson as Stannis's foster father is given added depth. In just a couple of sentences, the maester shows just how deeply he loves Stannis, which he has done since the tragic loss of Lord Stefan and Lady Cassana. While everyone else was put off by young Stannis's sad and prickly demeanor, Cresson recognized the lack of love around him and took it upon himself to fill the void. He gave his love as a foster father to Stannis wholeheartedly, even more generously than he did Robert or the youngest and arguably most lovable of the brothers, Renly. Unlike Stannis, those two were capable of garnering love from other people, and so we see how noble, true, and loyal Maester Cresson's love really was. This not only speaks volumes about Cresson's character, but it invites us to judge Stannis on his treatment of the old man who's been by his side all these years as we continue to watch events unfurl. And so now Cresson must beg a seat at Stannis's table for two reasons. First, because he still feels like he belongs there as an advisor. Second, of course, to be in range of Melisandre by night's end if he is to save Stannis's soul by poisoning her. Predictably, the triangle of Melisandre, Stannis, and Selyse are at the head of the table. Thankfully, the compassionate Davos offers to share his place, and Cresson gets a seat on the bench, although the maester fears he's too far from the seat of high honor to administer the poison. It's worth pointing to the similarities between Cresson and Davos, another man who seems devoted to Stannis, and another who will later plan to kill Melisandre in order to free his king from her evil influence. Even at this stage, Davos conveys his distrust of the Red Woman, calling Stannis's plans to press his claims on the back of Melisandre's visions of victory fool's business. Whereas Melisandre compares Cresson to Patchface, Davos sees the fool in her. Given the decency of both men, the reader is quick to align with their perspective. Stannis, however, is seen turning away from Cresson toward Melisandre, a movement which seems layered in meaning. Soon Cresson attempts to give his counsel. He encourages Stannis to make common cause with the Starks and Arryns against the Lannisters. The king replies that all are usurpers who have betrayed his entitlement and so all are now enemies. Cresson despairingly thinks, I have lost him, and those four words do a great deal in conveying Stannis's readiness to burn all bridges and everything he knows to get what he feels he's entitled to. The only ally Stannis needs is the Lord of Light, claims a resolute Selyse. Gods make uncertain allies at best, and that one has no power here, retorts Cresson, with a maester's wisdom, to which Melisandre takes predictable exception. Her conflict with Cresson grows, and it's worth considering the threat she might feel from a character like Cresson. 
Just as her magic personality and extremism are anathema to him, so must his logic, reason, and methodology be to her. To unite the room in undermining the old man, she simply has to make a mockery of him. She suggests he should don his fool's crown once more. Lady Selyse enthusiastically agrees, ordering him to wear the helm, and the stage is set for another round of the bullying game Mock the Old Man. However, we just need one man's approval for the bullying to continue, and unfortunately, Stannis obliges. In what might be a symbolically pivotal moment for Stannis' character, he orders Patchface to give his absurd crown over as his wife had commanded. No, the old maester thought, this is not you, not your way. You were always just, always hard, yet never cruel, never. You did not understand mockery, no more than you understood laughter. When Selyse suggests further torment of Cresson, Stannis answers that she goes too far and that the old man has served him well. It's one of three small moments where we found Stannis at least acknowledging some worth in the old man, but we should be asking the question, if Stannis is aware of Crescent's fatherly devotion, why does he continue to allow the humiliation? Crescent then thinks, I will serve you to the last, as he fidgets to find the poison. He takes Davos's cup of wine, laces it, and asks Melisandre to share the cup with him as a reconciliation. For the sake of the realm and for the soul of my lord, he whispers to an alarmed Davos Seaworth. Melisandre appears to immediately guess his game, although we later learn that she foresees all threats to herself in her flames, and says, It's not too late to spill your wine, appearing unconcerned. She then drinks most of the wine herself and returns the cup to the maester. And now you. Whether Crescent had always been prepared for this to be a murder-suicide is impossible to say, though his thought, when he took his place on the bench, I must be closer to her if I am to get the strangler into her cup, surely indicates that he still had hopes of passing off the murder in the guise of someone choking at table. However, it's evident that he was prepared to die in this moment, in spite of his fear and anxiety. It's worth noting that here he has won his battle with fear in those final moments, a sign of great courage. However, that seems like a minor victory in light of his death and Melisandre's survival. Crescent dies with a thin whistle coming from his throat and Melisandre's triumphant declaration in his ears, He does have power here, my lord. The ringing of the bells on his fool's helm ultimately denote his foolishness for denying her power, for trusting in omens, and for failing to prevent her, quote, madness from spreading. The Red Woman's demonstration of her abilities in front of Stannis and his lords is a cruel twist in Crescent's moribund tale. Ultimately, his actions might have only served to make them all more believing of and susceptible to the Red Woman's enchantment. The next time we see Stannis, he's involved with the burning of the Seven, an extremist religious gesture outlining an intolerance and a thirst for flame that spreads through the story. Together with presiding over Crescent's humiliation, the burning of the Seven underlines Stannis' willingness to turn away from his familiar world and his family 
in the name of destiny and for the temptations offered by the woman in red. Melisandre has advanced her chess pieces, and there is virtually no one in Stannis's camp to gainsay her now. She becomes the devil upon Stannis's shoulder, and while the plain-spoken Davos will stand in for an angel on his other shoulder, the Onion Knight won't always be around to provide balance. With this cast and the gloom around Dragonstone set to follow them, what could possibly go wrong? Crescent tried to reply, but his words caught in his throat. His cough became a terrible, thin whistle as he strained to suck in air. Iron fingers tightened round his neck. As he sank to his knees, still he shook his head, denying her, denying her power, denying her magic, denying her god. And the cowbells pealed in his antlers, singing, Fool, 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 while the red woman looked down on him in pity, the candle flames dancing in her red, red eyes. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So, Maester Crescent's death at the end of his prologue brings up numerous talking points, not the least of which is the mysterious strangler. A fast-acting poison, self-administered by the maester whose intended target showed a strange immunity to it. The reader is right to come away with questions. To start off, let's discuss the substance itself. What exactly is the Strangler? What's it made of and how does it work? This chapter introduces and explains it. Here's a passage. He touched one of the crystals lightly with the tip of his little finger. Such a small thing to hold the power of life and death. It was made from a certain plant that grew only on the islands of the Jade Sea, half a world away. The leaves had to be aged and soaked in a wash of limes and sugar water and certain rare spices from the Summer Isles. Afterward, they could be discarded, but the potion must be thickened with ash and allowed to crystallize. The process was slow and difficult, the necessaries costly and hard to acquire. The alchemists of Lys knew the way of it, though, and the faceless men of Bravos, and the maesters of his order as well, though it was not something talked about beyond the walls of the citadel. All the world knew that a maester forged his silver link when he learned the art of healing, but the world preferred to forget that men who knew how to heal also knew how to kill. Crescent no longer recalled the name the Ashahi gave the leaf, or the Lysine poisoners the crystal. In the citadel, it was simply called the Strangler. Dissolved in wine, it would make the muscles of a man's throat clench tighter than any fist, shutting off his windpipe. 
They said a victim's face turned as purple as the little crystal seed from which his death was grown. But so too did a man choking on a morsel of food. So, we get a clear, if somewhat incomplete, view of the process of making the strangler, its origins and essos, and its effects when ingested. It's wonderfully thorough and gives us a clear picture of Crescent's intentions. But one could ask the question, why give such a lengthy exposition to a poison? As we know, Crescent's death will not be the only time we see the strangler at work. In one of the pivotal moments of a storm of swords, small purple crystals dissolved in wine cause the appearance of strangulation, with the victim making a thin whistling sound before their death, all in all resembling a person choking on food. The Crescent Prologue gives us the background knowledge to understand what is happening when Joffrey starts cough-coughing at his wedding to Marjorie. It was Sansa Stark who had purple amethysts in her hairnet given to her by Sir Dantos Hollard. At the wedding, it's pointedly rearranged by none other than Lady Olena Tyrell. As Joffrey choked, ostensibly on his food, and after drinking red wine no less, he began to make the same thin whistle that Cresson made, with both men described as having curiously tight necks. Here's a quote. A fearful, high, thin sound emerged from the boy's throat, the sound of a man trying to suck a river through a reed. Joffrey began to claw at his throat, his nails tearing bloody gouges in the flesh. As Sansa makes her escape, she stops to change her attire and pulls off the hairnet. The web of spun silver hung from her fingers, the fine metal glimmering softly, the stones black in the moonlight, black amethysts from a shy. One of them was missing. Sansa lifted the net for a closer look. There was a dark smudge in the silver socket, where the stone had fallen out. So in hindsight, we can see that many of the clues as to what exactly happened to Joffrey point right back here to the Crescent chapter. Please check out our episode about Joffrey, that's number 31, to hear a lot more about the Purple Wedding and the plotting around it. But as for the Strangler itself, the pertinent information is in Crescent's description of the poison and the description of his death itself. So now we come to the question of why the poison didn't affect Melisandre. There are fandom theories that she's somehow tricking Crescent in the key moment, either with a sleight of hand or perhaps, as one idea suggests, she takes the first large gulps of the wine to then leave Crescent with the poison that had settled to the bottom of the cup. Either of these options would emphasize Melisandre's role as a charlatan, And we think that while it's an interesting notion, she would be playing a decidedly risky game there, especially in the latter scenario where she drinks almost all the wine. And while she is certainly not short on charlatanism, she is also truly magical. As we'll see shortly in A Clash of Kings, she is capable of birthing shadowy sons for Stannis, who make rather nifty assassins. So we believe Melisandre is simply using her magic here, as hinted by the shimmering ruby, which going forward will so often be a herald of her supernatural abilities at work. That in itself makes this scene a fitting end to a chapter where Cresson had been wrestling with the notion of superstition and the supernatural. As Crescent dies, denying her power, whilst literally looking a fool, Melisandre looks down in pity. 
drinking poison unscathed is meant to introduce her to all of us as a supernatural character, trumping the logical cynic who's completely upended in this fantasy world. In this instance, she doesn't need a cheap trick like the ones we described, or like the Iocane powder scene from The Princess Bride, which this scene so often puts me in mind of. The Red Woman is the true witch in the story. One who sees visions and flames is likely far older than she appears, and bleeds smoking black blood, a description she shares with dragons later in the text. Speaking of dragons... Having witnessed their birth amidst fire and blood at the end of the last book, and now with Melisandre's feet here, the reader is slowly being exposed to the magic in the story. The Strangler, fast-acting and indisputable, is the vehicle that allows Melisandre's magical nature to become manifest. As with Daenerys, we won't long escape the mysterious and otherworldly when the narrative moves around this character. Her evident immunity to a poison described as more or less foolproof places her firmly in the realm of the supernatural, providing a link of sorts between this prologue and the Will prologue from A Game of Thrones. And that's the truly interesting thing about The Strangler. Sure, this chapter gives information about it that the reader must have in order to interpret a later chapter, but at its heart, it is, as we said, the plot device that allows magic to enter this otherwise rather domestic chapter. Because each of the A Song of Ice and Fire prologues is used to further the role of a particular element of magic in the story. From the others in A Game of Thrones and A Storm of Swords, to the face-changing faceless men in A Feast for Crows, to the skin-changing Varamyr's second life in A Dance with Dragons. In this particular chapter, the magic is introduced in the final paragraph, allowing the story to unfold before hooking the reader in with a small piece of the unknown that leaves us wanting to know more. Let's consider the other prologues in the same regard. In the Game of Thrones, we find out about the other's necromancy at the very end of the prologue, so when Othar and Jafer Flowers rise as whites in the same book, we've been prepared. In A Storm of Swords, the army of the dead are announced in the final paragraph of the prologue, setting up the others and their magic on a mass scale. In the A Feast for Crows prologue, the late revelation that glamouring Jacken is the alchemist links to Arya's faceless men training perfectly. And in A Dance with Dragons, Varamir's late ascent into a magical second life just might be providing exposition for Jon Snow's ultimate fate after his stabbing at the end of the same book. Here in A Clash of Kings, as we said, we witness magic at the end, and tasting the Red Woman's sorcery here allows the reader to swallow the pertinent supernatural Shadow Babies plotline later on, without the sensation of a deus ex machina where an ability is unleashed without any preparation or precedent. This is also a key reason to include the Strangler in the prologue, when Joffrey becomes its next victim. We've been prepared, and so we accept the poison as part of the well-considered world-building that we'd already been privy to. And up next, we'll be looking at more world-building, as we consider the glory and gloom of Dragonstone itself. Dragonstone was grim beyond a doubt, a lonely citadel in the wet waste surrounded by storm and salt with the smoking shadow of the mountain at its back.
Dragonstone is the island fortress that was once a part of the Valyrian Empire and became the seat of House Targaryen after Aenar Targaryen's daughter Daenys foresaw the doom of Valyria in a dream 12 years before it struck, causing Lord Aenar to move his family, their dragons, and all their possessions to the remote outpost. The castle itself had been built some two centuries previously, fashioned by Valyrian sorcerers using magic and dragonfire that had the power to melt and shape stone. As a result, the black stone of the castle was shaped into many dragons, and dragon motifs are found throughout. The dragon mouth that forms the entrance of the Great Hall, noted in the Crescent Chapter, is but part of a great dragon whose belly is the hall itself, while the nearby kitchens are in the shape of a curled-up dragon, the smoke from the cook fires emanating from its nostrils. A pair of wings cover the smithy and armory, and dragon tails feature in arches, while stone grotesques such as weaverns, basilisks, griffins, cockatrices, and more, in their hundreds, dominate the crenellated ramparts. All in all, this place is grim, dark, and menacing. Many in the story think of its dark reputation, and Davos Seaworth would think of an old rumor that, quote, Dragonstone was built with the stones of hell, while Kevin Lannister specifically thinks of the menacing fortress that, like all things Valyrian, it, quote, stank of sorcery. In the overview, we mentioned the painted table in its chamber atop the stone drum. Painted and carved at the command of Lord Aegon Targaryen six generations after Lord Aenar brought their family to Dragonstone, this massive table indicates a fascination with Westeros that predates the events leading up to the conquest. Of interest is the remarkable scale of the project and the inclusion of all the woodlands, towns, rivers, and castles of the land. It's worth wondering if this remarkable detail could have been the result of having a dragon's eye view of the landscape. Dragonstone the castle is situated upon an island of the same name. The volcanic island apparently features deposits of obsidian, a glass-like rock formed through volcanic activity and known in story as dragonglass. As the narrative of A Song of Ice and Fire has progressed, the potential importance of this substance in defeating the others has been made clear and a large cache of it at Dragonstone noted. The island sits at the entrance to Blackwater Bay and so commands the sea route into eastern Westeros, which the early Targaryen residents of the island took advantage of, along with their fellow Valyrians of House Valerion and House Celtigar, both known for their naval strength. Dominance over the mid-reaches of the Narrow Sea was aided by Targaryens upon their dragons, of which they had brought five from Valyria. Dragons seem to thrive on the island, with the heat and sulfuric fumes of its volcano, known as the Dragonmont, providing them with an ideal environment for nesting and breeding. Though four of the Valyrian dragons eventually died there, at least two others were hatched, so that when Lord Aegon set himself upon the conquest of Westeros, he was aided by the three legendary dragons, Valyrian, Vagar, and Meraxes. Following the conquest, Dragonstone remained an important holding of House Targaryen. Over 100 years later, Rhaenyra Targaryen would make it her seat during the Dance of the Dragons, and remarked to her maester that dragons seemed to prefer the Smoky Island, and indeed there were as many as 21 dragons alive during that conflict, many of which were hatched on Dragonstone. 
Like their dragons, Targaryens seemed to prefer the island fortress as well. Both Aegon the Conqueror and his eldest son Aenys would die there and were cremated in its yard. Even after the Red Keep was completed and Targaryen kings were mostly born and died in King's Landing, Dragonstone remained the seat of the heirs to the throne. At the tragic end of the Dance of the Dragons, Queen Rhaenyra Targaryen would be roasted alive and eaten by the dragon Sunfire in the castle yard, while many years later, Queen Rhaella Targaryen died in childbirth there as a ferocious storm battered the island. Queen Rhaena Targaryen, widow of Aegon the Uncrowned and Maegor I, fled to Dragonstone with her daughter Arya when she escaped Maegor's court at King's Landing, and later claimed Dragonstone as her seat following the ascension of her brother Jaehaerys to the throne. It was from Dragonstone that the fiery Arya would take flight with the great dragon Balerion, only to return more than a year later, near death, eventually dying at King's Landing without ever revealing where she had been. This is just a taste of the stories that are told about the place. This kind of drama seems to follow House Targaryen, and in spite of the fact that happy, or at least non-tragic history, may have outweighed these other events, it's probably no wonder that the bleak, smoke-shrouded island they called home would be cloaked in an air of tragedy. When Maester Crescent wonders if his gargoyle companions had ever seen a comet like the one that appeared in the sky in the final days of his life, he also wonders what they might say if their stone tongues could speak. Certainly a valid thought in a place so imbued with grim history. In A Clash of Kings, Dragonstone is introduced to us as a brand new setting. As we said earlier, its history as the origin of Aegon's conquest of Westeros is emphasized, likely to provide a contrast with the plans of Stannis Baratheon, its current lord. But in spite of Stannis's meager hopes of prevailing in a land attack at the outset of A Clash of Kings, it's to be noted that Dragonstone, along with its allies in the gullet and along the shores of Blackwater Bay, did command the key trade routes to the capital. It's noted that Stannis' ships, mostly those under the command of Salador's son, are stopping all trading vessels and collecting their levies. In addition, the strategic location of the island fortress gave Stannis access to sea routes to all of the eastern Westeros, western Essos, and beyond. In fact, there were few Westerosi in a position to challenge Dragonstone's naval dominance until one sailed round to House Redwine in the Arbor and House Greyjoy in the Iron Islands, both in the West. While a comparison between Stannis and Aegon was likely intended, another parallel may yet arise in the narrative which would greatly enhance the symbolic importance of Dragonstone. Daenerys Stormborn was born on the island at the end of Robert's Rebellion and was taken to safety in Essos even as Stannis Baratheon made his way across Blackwater Bay to seize the fortress in his brother's name. It's been pointed out that the significance of her starting her own reconquest of the Seven Kingdoms at Dragonstone would be enormous. By returning to her birthplace with her three dragons, she could parallel her famous ancestor's invasion and possibly give her own cause greater legitimacy. In our next section, we'll discuss Lord Stannis's obvious displeasure at the fate that had led to him being granted Dragonstone by his brother Robert, while Renly was given Storm's End. 
This situation, first revealed in Crescent's point of view, is a huge setup for the conflict between Stannis and Renly that will play out in the rest of A Clash of Kings, ultimately leading to Renly's death, the very situation Crescent hoped to avert with his planned murder of Melisandre. And so, up next, we'll dig deep into everything we know about Crescent's past and his relationship with the members of House Baratheon. This fall, why not take your family on the ultimate Hellride experience with Dragonstone All Hallows Tours? On the ominous island in Blackwater Bay, you'll be greeted by black stone towers shaped like dragons topped by hundreds of twisted gargoyles. Meet a cute kid who harbors dreams of being eaten alive by dragons. Meet a fool whose grim tragedy by drowning has transformed him into a twitching and capering prophet. And meet a red witch who likes late-night burnings on the beach. Amidst the looming blackness of gothic design, watch the night fires from your window. Walk along the shore over the charred remains of religious symbols and listen to the soothing sound of Stannis Baratheon grinding his teeth in his chamber. Dragonstone All Hallows Tours. You'll definitely want to leave. Crescent was born during the reign of Aerys I Targaryen, around the time of the Third Blackfyre Rebellion. We don't know if he had a house, or if he was common-born, or even what region he came from. In fact, we know only one fact about his early years, and that is that at some point during his time at the Citadel, he was acquainted with Walgrave, the now extremely elderly and sadly senile archmaester, who was a renowned expert on ravencraft and sat below the black iron mask at the Citadel until his wits abandoned him. When Lord Stephen Baratheon died while Crescent was serving as maester at Storm's End, he was already an old man, past his prime for sure, and closer to 60 than 50. We don't know how long Crescent had been with House Baratheon, but it's possible he had been at Storm's End since Lord Stephen had married Kisana Estremont some 17 years previously. Take the case of Maester Lewin at Winterfell. He was apparently sent to replace Maester Wallace after the death of Lord Rickard and the marriage of his heir Eddard to Catelyn Tully. Recall that Lewin was said to have delivered all of Catelyn's children, including Rob, who was born at Riverrun, and perhaps we can infer that sometimes a maester joined a household along with a bride. As we'll see, Crescent himself does appear to have followed Stannis to Dragonstone after his marriage to Cilice Florent. The point being that in spite of it not being specifically stated, we think there's a strong possibility that Crescent had known Robert and Stannis, the Elder Baratheons, all of their lives, having possibly served their family since its formation when he was in his early 40s. We see Lewin acting as a surrogate father for the Starks in their parents' absences, and we think it's easy to imagine a similar situation at Storm's End. Whatever the case, we know for sure that in 278 AC, when Lord Stephen was sent to Essos by his cousin Aerys II to seek out a bride for Prince Rhaegar, he took his wife Lady Cassandra with him, and they left their three sons at Storm's End in the care of Maester Crescent. Robert, the eldest, was 16 at the time, spending time at home, though he had long been away at the Eyrie as a ward to Lord John Arryn. Stannis was 14, and the youngest, Renly, would have still been an infant, 
no more than a year old. Lord Stefan's mission was a failure. There was no bride for the prince to be found in Essos, and Prince Rhaegar would very soon afterwards marry his distant cousin, Princess Elia of Dorne. But Lord and Lady Baratheon did find something they hoped would make their three sons feel the trip had been fruitful. Two weeks before they set sail for home, Lord Stefan wrote to Cresson, We have found the most splendid fool, only a boy, yet nimble as a monkey and witty as a dozen courtiers. He juggles and riddles and does magic, and he can sing prettily in four tongues. We have bought his freedom and hope to bring him home with us. Robert will be delighted with him, and perhaps in time he will even teach Stannis how to laugh. So, as we've said, Stannis was apparently solemn and stiff even as a child. His father knew it, and Crescent seems to have been well aware of it too. Crescent thinks of the boy Stannis, quote, standing cold in the shadows while the sun shone on his elder brother. Whatever he did, Robert had done first and better. Poor boy. He also thinks that Stannis had never understood laughter or mockery, and sadly, that no one had ever taught Stannis to laugh, least of all the Valentine fool. And that last was because the Baratheon galley Windproud, carrying Lord Stefan and Lady Kassana and their new fool, was caught in a sudden storm on Shipbreaker Bay as they returned from Essos. Robert and Stannis were on the parapets of the ancient fortress, watching as the ferocious storm smashed their parents' ship to pieces. No one survived the wreck but for the fool Patchface, who washed ashore three days later. Stannis would tell Davos Seaworth that he stopped believing in gods that day. Quote, Any gods so monstrous as to drown my mother and father would never have my worship, I vowed. In the aftermath of the wreck, Cresson resisted the suggestion of Sir Harbert, Storm's End Castellan, and the orphan Baratheon boy's great-uncle, that they euthanized the severely damaged fool Patchface, Perhaps it was because he hoped Patchface might recover and be a comfort to the boys as a last gift from their parents, or perhaps as a macer and healer, such an act was simply anathema to him. Either way, Crescent refused, and so Patchface became a part of the Baratheon household. Crescent also resolved to stand in place of a father to Lord Stefan's sons, some twenty years later thinking of them as three sons he had raised after the angry sea claimed Lord Stefan. Clearly, Cresson loved all of these boys, but Robert must have been soon away back to the Vale, since sometime in the year or so following his parents' deaths, he would father a child of his own there, the girl Maya Stone. And Renly, young as he was, probably spent a lot of time with a nurse, and, being blessed with a sunny and outgoing disposition, had no trouble forming bonds with members of the household. Stannis was different. Sad, lonely, and sullen after his parents' deaths, he was the one who was unloved and unhappy, and Crescent saw it. He thinks how he cared for and loved Stannis, lived for him even, because Stannis was the one who needed him most. Like a true parent, his love for Stannis appears to have been selfless and unconditional, not requiring anything in return, but always providing a steady foundation of nurture and guidance, despite the boy's inherent introversion. And so Cresson raised Stannis to manhood and Renly as a youth. He was with them at Storm's End during the siege and Robert's rebellion, and it was at his insistence that the deserters that Stannis captured trying to leave the castle by a postern gate were not flung, 
Joffrey style, over the walls with a trebuchet, as Stannis suggested, but were instead imprisoned. Renly tells his supporters the tale years later. Maester Cresson told Stannis that we might be forced to eat our dead, and there was no gain in flinging away good meat. So Cresson was a wise man who knew how to appeal to his lord. The story certainly begs the question of whether Cresson was prepared to eat their former comrades, but we think he simply used the right tactic to give the deserters a chance of survival. Their crime, after all, was mainly motivated by fear, though with his rigid sense of honor and duty, it's doubtful Stannis saw it that way. After Davos Seaworth saved the garrison at Storm's End with his heroic blockade running and Ned Stark lifted the siege, Stannis took up the role of admiral for his elder brother's navy. Now king of the Seven Kingdoms, it might have been thought Robert would cede Storm's End to Stannis, and Stannis, granting Davos Seaworth lands in a keep on Cape Wrath, certainly points in that direction. It might have even been understandable had Robert kept the ancient castle in his own name until he had younger sons of his own, but what happened in reality is a bit puzzling until we get Crescent's explanation. Stannis reminisces how he built a fleet and sailed to Dragonstone to root out Robert's enemies, incidentally, their pregnant cousin Rhaella and her children. All in the name of duty, Stannis took the island fortress in Robert's name, though, as he recalls, Robert was peeved that Willem Darry was able to escape with the two Targaryen children. As thanks, Robert named his brother Lord of Dragonstone, an honor Stannis did not find entirely satisfying. Dragonstone, as ancient, prestigious, and mighty a fortress as it was, did not command the bannermen and incomes that Storm's End did, and when Stannis was granted Dragonstone, Storm's End went to Renly, a nine-year-old boy. But as much as Storm's End is a sore subject for Stannis, the honor which Robert granted him and continued to allow him after his own son was born appears to have been lost on Stannis. Since Aenar Targaryen brought his family to the westernmost outpost of the Valyrian Empire some 425 years before, Dragonstone had been the seat of House Targaryen. Even when Aegon the Conqueror sailed for Westeros, he continued to treat Dragonstone as his home base, and it was there he died many years later. His descendants eventually developed a tradition of bestowing the island castle and the title Prince of Dragonstone upon the eldest son and crown prince, which continued right up until Robert's victory and the deaths of Ares and Rhaegar. By naming Stannis as Lord of Dragonstone, Robert was giving his brother the prestigious seat that had been held by the heir to the Iron Throne for generations. By allowing that seat to remain with his brother after Joffrey was born, Robert broke with tradition in a significant way. Imagine if an English monarch decided to name someone other than their eldest son, Prince of Wales. Cresson would attempt to soothe Stannis's ire, as he had no doubt done many times over the years, by reminding his lord that Robert had needed him, a man of strength and resolve, to hold the former Targaryen seat for him. He simply couldn't entrust that responsibility to his other brother, a mere child, or his as-yet-unborn son. Poor Stannis. His grievances against Robert, listed in his last conversation with Cresson, relate almost exclusively to Robert not loving him. 
The litany of his frustrations in that regard read almost like a little boy complaining of imagined slights to a parent. Here are some quotes. I never asked for Dragonstone. I never wanted it. I took it because Robert's enemies were here and he commanded me to root them out. I built his fleet and did his work, dutiful as a younger brother should be to an elder, as Renly should be to me. And what was Robert's thanks? He names me Lord of Dragonstone and gives Storm's End and its incomes to Renly. Storm's End belonged to House Baratheon for 300 years. By rights, it should have passed to me when Robert took the Iron Throne. And he continues... Why should I avenge Eddard Stark? That man was nothing to me. Oh, Robert loved him, to be sure. Loved him as a brother. How often did I hear that? I was his brother, not Ned Stark, but you would never have known it by the way he treated me. I held Storm's End for him, watching good men starve while Mace Tyrell and Paxter Redwine feasted within sight of my walls. Did Robert thank me? No. He thanked Stark for lifting the siege when we were down to rats and radishes. I built a fleet at Robert's command, took Dragonstone in his name. Did he take my hand and say, Well done, brother. Whatever should I do without you? No, he blamed me for letting Willem Darry steal away Viserys and the babe, as if I could have stopped it. I sat on his council for fifteen years, helping John Aaron rule his realm while Robert drank and whored. But when John died, did my brother name me his hand? No, he went galloping off to his dear friend Ned Stark, and offered him the honor, and small good it did either one of them. So Cresson had a very careful and measured way of replying to these complaints, and it's plain to see that he had a great deal of practice at managing Stannis and his emotional distress. While the word emotional is hardly the first word that comes to mind when describing Stannis Baratheon, this conversation with the man who had been a father to him for much of his life, makes it clear that inside this hard and stern man is a sad and lonely little boy who simply wants to be recognized and appreciated by his big brother. Cresson's experience in handling Stannis's complaints was developed initially in his child and young adulthood as the maester of Storm's End and a surrogate parent. But not long after Stannis took Silice Florent as his wife, Cresson arrived at Dragonstone to serve the man whom he had loved and served for all those years as a child. While the Citadel sending a maester to serve a castle when the Lord takes a new wife doesn't seem all that unusual, it does seem to be somewhat unusual for a maester to follow a child he'd helped to raise into adulthood or to request a specific post. Nonetheless, Cresson spent the last 12 years of his life at Dragonstone in no small amount of discomfort. He disliked the atmosphere of the castle itself, and in his old age, the stairs were a torment to him, especially after he broke his hip in the year previous to his death. In spite of it all, even when Stannis turned his back on him on that final night of his life, Cresson would think, At your side, I belong at your side, and I will serve you to the last, my sweet lord, my poor lonely son. Crescent's final act would be one of self-sacrifice. As he saw it, the opportunity to poison Melisandre of Ashai was too precious to be wasted. But the only way to accomplish it, for a surety, was to offer her a cup of wine that he would share with her. As he would say to Davos when the Onion Knight saw him drop the crystals into the wine goblet, he was doing, quote, a thing that must be done for the sake of the realm 
and the soul of my Lord. Such heroism lies in the realm of unconditional love. Cresson loved Stannis to the end, and by extension his daughter Shireen. And so, from a narrative point of view, Cresson had to be removed so that Stannis, whom Cresson recognizes as a lost and lonely child, could fall prey to the promises of Lady Melisandre, and his arc could proceed in the manner the author had planned. But through Cresson's point-of-view chapter, we, the reader, are granted a deep understanding of the inner turmoil of Stannis Baratheon, something that will be the subject of our next and final segment. Things are now as they are. They will be fulfilled in what is fated. Neither burnt sacrifice nor libation of offerings without fire will soothe intense anger away. Agamemnon by Aeschylus. Welcome to this section we're calling The Fate of Stannis Baratheon, where all the Winds of Winter spoilers possibly revealed by the HBO show will be fair game. We can't think of another time that we've forayed into Game of Thrones in a regular episode, but as we'll see, there is reason to believe that we can glean specific information about the Winds of Winter from a plot point that has its origins right here in this Crescent Prologue. And so if you're not a show watcher and don't want to be spoilerized, this might be the time to leave us. Thank you for being here today if you're leaving, and for the rest of you, for the next several minutes, let's dig into that thread of Stannis' arc that may eventually come to define it. So, in Game of Thrones, Episode 9 of Season 5, titled The Dance of Dragons, a desperate Stannis Baratheon wanting to invade Winterfell amidst terrible snowy weather presides over Melisandre's burning of his daughter. It was the coup de théâtre of the season, and the revelation caused shockwaves, especially among many book readers who perceived Stannis as a righteous and just protagonist who would never consider such a horrific act. Many fans hoped that this scene was Benioff and Weiss's insertion, until word spread that in the Inside the Episode featurette, the showrunners had confessed that the idea was in fact a plot point given to them by George. And this blurred the line of canon, given that the author's word was involved in there somewhere to an undefined extent. Given the author's contribution, Stannis' involvement in Shireen's fate seems undeniable, and this is why we consider this section to contain spoilers for book-only fans. But it's worth considering, using supporting evidence from the text, just how much of that moment in the show might reflect what we'll see in The Winds of Winter and beyond. Stannis Baratheon is the tragic Greek in a cast of characters that is pulled mainly from the pages of British and European history and legend. His stern and dark demeanor recalls Agamemnon in the cursed house of Atreus. Complete with his own Cassandra in the person of Melisandre of Ashai, Stannis, like Agamemnon, is burdened with a family history of treachery, incest, and kinslaying. This isn't to say there aren't other inspirations to be found in the person of Stannis Baratheon. Shakespeare's Macbeth is there, and Richard III as well, not to mention the Roman general Coriolanus, 
But as we'll get back to shortly, it's Agamemnon's tragic story that seems to have the most resonance in the arc Stannis is moving along. And in spite of Melisandre's promises about the future, perhaps Stannis would be wise to heed the advice of Aeschylus on the implacable nature of fate, implied in the quote we used to open this section. On the other hand, we as readers should take careful note of Shireen and the ways in which her fate seems to be prefigured throughout the series. The main reason to include this discussion in this episode is that our first point-of-view introductions to both Princess Shireen and Stannis Baratheon come in this Crescent prologue. Crescent thinks of her, she would be ten on her next name day, and she was the saddest child that Maester Crescent had ever known. And then, through Crescent's eyes, we see her father Stannis as a painfully awkward middle child whose rigid devotion to duty and righteousness is more curse than blessing. And of course, by the end of the chapter, we see the Lord of Dragonstone as a sovereign dangerously in the thrall of a zealous witch. And it's also in the Crescent prologue that we get the first hint of where Stannis's arc and his red witch are leading him, when his daughter Shireen tells Crescent, I had bad dreams about the dragons. They were coming to eat me. Now, Dragonstone is full of gargoyles carved in the likeness of dragons, and of course, it comes with a grim history that would surely be accessible to an educated child. The tale of her ancestor, Rhaenyra Targaryen, being fed to a dragon by her half-brother in the courtyard of that very fortress is one that certainly might have preyed upon a child's imagination, and we would do well to remember that child's Targaryen ancestry when evaluating this piece of evidence. As we've come to know in the previous volume of A Song of Ice and Fire through a series of dreams Daenerys has, and in the wider canon, when we hear about the dreams of Targaryens of the past, like Makar's son, Daron, dragons aren't always literal in dreams. As seen in those particular dreams, sometimes dragons represent people, Targaryens specifically. But perhaps they could be representing fire here, since, if nothing else, dragons can be equated with fire. Therefore, a dream of being eaten by dragons may be nothing more than a dream of being burned alive, It seems like a reasonable interpretation, although by itself it's barely a hint at her fate and can't be considered hard evidence of any sort that her father will be involved in any way. But next we have a moment in A Storm of Swords which encapsulates a growing theme of Melisandre attempting to burn someone for what she perceives as the greater good. Robert's illegitimate son, Edric Storm, is in line for a roasting before Davos Seaworth's intervention. Previously, Davos had witnessed an exchange on the subject between the king and his priestess. Stannis ground his teeth again. I never asked for this crown. Gold is cold and heavy on the head, but so long as I am the king, I have a duty. If I must sacrifice one child to the flames to save a million from the dark, Sacrifice is never easy, Davos, or it is no true sacrifice. Tell him, my lady. Melisandre said, As Orahai tempered Lightbringer with the heart's blood of his own beloved wife, if a man with a thousand cows gives one to God, that is nothing but a man who offers the only cow he owns. So that quote illuminates the added value Shireen being Stannis's only child and heir, 
might have as a sacrifice, from Melisandre's perspective at least, even though in Dance, Stannis orders that if anything should happen to him, the throne should be won for Shireen. And so there's an increased feeling of menace to that interaction in retrospect, especially given that moments before, right before Davos confessed to having sent Edric Storm away, Stannis had essentially signaled that he was going to accede to Melisandre's demands for the boy. Spare me your reproaches. I like this no more than you do, but my duty is to the realm. My duty. He turned back to Melisandre. You swear there is no other way. Swear it on your life, for I promise you shall die by inches if you lie. So the passage illuminates how far Stannis might be willing to go to fulfill his destiny as he sees it as a prophesied savior figure. The reader and Melisandre, of course, have different opinions on whether her particular reading of ancient prophecy is actually true, and the narrative actually plays with the concept of her misinterpreting prophecy several times. And so the question becomes, especially in light of Melisandre's viewpoint on the nature of sacrifice, is it really that much of a leap from the case of him consenting to the burning of Edric Storm to sacrificing his own daughter? We think that with the surrounding themes of burning people as sacrifices, with people having king's blood being particularly powerful offerings, of Stannis being the chosen one after Melisandre attempts to shoehorn him into the narrative of a prophesied figure, of Stannis being increasingly desperate to get what he wants, and darkness and winter looming. It might be more of a short step than a giant leap. The line, if I must sacrifice one child to the flames to save a million from the dark, more than highlights Stannis's capacity in this regard. But there's also a historical-slash-legendary parallel to note that we alluded to at the beginning of this segment. When Stannis burned Shireen on the HBO show, some viewers found it to be such a surprising coup de teatre that they imagined that nobody could have predicted it. Out of nowhere, they thought. But they were wrong. Users at Westeros.org had already prophesied Stannis, Selyse, and Melisandre's burning of Shireen. How were they able to predict, years earlier, this unpredictable event? The answer lies in the power of parallel. Using comparative analysis techniques, some fans predicted that the Greek myth of Agamemnon and Iphigenia would be reflected by Stannis and Shireen, and he would end up burning his daughter for the greater good. Agamemnon was a Mycenaean whose uncle and cousin usurped his father's throne following his father's gruesome murder of the uncle's eldest sons. In the broader family story, as in Stannis's, there are themes of incest, adultery, and kinslaying. After noticing similarities between Stannis and Agamemnon, fans simply followed the parallel through to its natural conclusion. Agamemnon's younger brother became, through marriage, the king of Sparta, Unfortunately, Menelaus's wife was Helen, who was born Helen of Sparta, but is best known to history as Helen of Troy, following her abduction by the Trojan prince Paris, which was the spark that led to the legendary Trojan War. Menelaus and his Spartans had helped Agamemnon to reclaim the Mycenaean throne, and so when the time came for war with the Trojans, 
Agamemnon was honor-bound to lend his aid. He was named commander of the Greek forces and assembled an army ready to sail for Troy. Different versions of the legend vary in their telling, but all agree that Agamemnon somehow angered the goddess Artemis, who cursed his army with sickness and calm winds, preventing them from sailing. Agamemnon is convinced by the prophet Calchas that he must sacrifice his daughter Iphigenia to appease the goddess, which he eventually does, and the army sails on to Troy. In short, Agamemnon kills his daughter for favorable weather. So the parallel, even containing various stag symbols upon close inspection, was a fairly accurate one, and the prediction was unerringly correct, made long before the HBO episode aired. We have possible foreshadowing, a plethora of ominous themes, and an unignorable tragic parallel. But for further clues, let's get back into the very fabric of the chapter we're considering today, the introductory Crescent Prologue. In hindsight, at least, one can view the prologue as a setting of the stage for a giant tragedy. George has gone to every length to cast a dark cloud over this set of characters, and we find, as is often the case, that their introductions are telling. First of all, the characters are imbued by the absolute grimness of their surroundings. Dragonstone is a closed environment where its inhabitants are seemingly imprisoned in gloom. George often uses weather, surroundings, and mood to set the scene, such as at the Red Wedding. Dragonstone is unbearably dour, and there is an absence of the vivid and colorful descriptions of decorations or food that George often offers of a place. So although we've looked at a lot of characters today, a quick recap is in order, with the hindsight of the Shireen tragedy arc revelation. Crescent fails in his attempt to stop the Red Woman in this prologue. So what's the message there for the longer story? Melisandre is not going to be easily halted in her fanaticism. After meeting the well-intentioned yet frail Maester, we meet Shireen, quote, the saddest child that Maester Crescent had ever known. Next follows Patchface, a weird side product of Stannis' parents' deaths and a man about whom Crescent wonders if he should have been put out of his misery. Patchface was a sorry thing. He was soft and obese, subject to twitches and trembles, incoherent as often as not. The girl was the only one who laughed at him now, the only one who cared if he lived or died. Then there's Shireen's mother, Selyse, a stern and increasingly brainwashed victim of the cult of the Red God. Her eyes were pale, her mouth stern, her voice a whip. The Red Woman had won her heart and soul. Davos Seaworth is the only adult other than Crescent shown to resist R'hllor's pull, but as much as he can push back against Melisandre, he will not be proverbially sitting on Stannis's shoulder forever. What might happen in his inevitable absence? For the record, this is the exact scenario that Game of Thrones presented to us. With Crescent's demise... Davos Seaworth happens to be the only adult who seems to have Shireen's best interests at heart. Opposed to Davos is Melisandre of Ashai. Against the gloomy backdrop of Dragonstone, she provides the only real color and brilliance in the chapter. She wore red head to heel, a long loose gown of flowing silk as bright as fire. 
She might appear to offer beauty and light amidst the darkness, but by the end of the chapter we are made aware of her dark magic, and we sense a falseness about her. We later learn that she has a tragic backstory of her own, but it hardly alleviates the menace she brings to the story as the fanatical priestess of the Red God. Finally, there's Stannis, a sincerely doer fellow with a tragic background all of his own. Stannis is depicted as turning his back on Crescent at a critical moment, one of our first impressions of his character. While he shares a dedication to honor and duty that might make him seem similar to Ned Stark, he lacks the devotion to family that informs all of Ned's actions. Stannis is an unhappy soul who feels little connection to his own family but has a strong sense of destiny and inevitability in his life. This first description of him speaks volumes about the grimness of his character. His mouth would have given despair to even the drollest of fools. It was a mouth made for frowns and scowls and sharply worded comments, all thin pale lips and clenched muscles, a mouth that had forgotten how to smile and had never known how to laugh. Overall, what kind of story do we really think George will be telling about this cast of characters? Why has he designed everything to be so joyless and dull? We think it's clear, in hindsight at least, that this prologue is a grounding for a classic tragedy, and it's no wonder that, aside from Agamemnon, fans have made comparisons to other great tragedies, such as Shakespeare's Macbeth. The arc of Stannis Baratheon as a well-intentioned leader degenerating into a man so desperate and cornered that a deal-with-the-devil-type situation might seem like the only way out. The burning of his only daughter, based on a deluded notion of the greater good, is something that we find very Martinian. One only has to consider George's propensity to shock readers in climactic moments, as witnessed with Ned's head and the Red Wedding, to believe that this is not a plot point that Benioff and Weiss dreamed up and wove into the story by themselves. And so the revelation from the HBO show makes us consider Crescent's prologue differently as a grounding for the tragedy that will reveal itself over several books and will one day be seen as the backbone of Stannis' arc. How much of the Game of Thrones episode will one day be book canon remains the source of debate in the fandom. For the record, we think it will turn out fairly accurate, though the show, by comparison, will seem somewhat rushed. Also for the record, while many dismiss Stannis's end at the hands of Brienne of Tarth as unlikely, we think there's evidence in A Clash of Kings that's just a bit too on the nose to ignore. When swearing her sword to Catelyn Stark, Brienne says, I swore a vow, three times I swore, you heard me, and I think when the time comes, you will not try and hold me back. Promise me that, that you will not hold me back from Stannis. We see this as pretty good evidence that Brienne might indeed be the one to bring justice to Stannis in the end. But there are also other parts of the books that can be viewed through a different lens with this foreknowledge, for example, Melisandre's visions of Patchface and her flames. That creature is dangerous. Many a time I have glimpsed him in my flames. Sometimes there are skulls about him, and his lips are red with blood. At one time, most interpretations out there predicted, along with Melisandre, some act of evil by Patchface. However, in our Patchface analysis, in the Prophecy episode, 
we concluded that such an act doesn't exactly fit the characterization of the fool. Since the HBO episode aired, we theorized that the blood will be his own, that perhaps in some way Patchface will try to protect Shireen, the only one who cares if he lives or dies, according to Crescent. Regardless, most now agree that there's one surety, that Stannis will preside over the burning of his daughter Shireen. In a typical Martinian twist, what will be perhaps the most despicable act of the entire series will not be presided over by an outright villain, but by the character who surely embodies shades of grey better than any other. We believe that Stannis will depart the story as a tortured soul, an unexpected villain harboring many regrets. It's worth remembering that in-universe, Rickard Karstark tries to insinuate Rob Stark will be accursed when he executes him, given their distant kinship, highlighting the taboo of kinslaying in Westeros. Surely this act, the execution of his own daughter, especially considering the unimaginable agony of being burnt alive, must top the taboo charts, as Davos will tell his king in A Storm of Swords. No man is as cursed as the kinslayer in the eyes of gods and men. At one time, Stannis Baratheon's fans, as well as his in-story followers, were sure he was going to leave his heroic mark on this story. Given that, this would have all been a great plot twist in a book-only scenario. Game of Thrones may have spoiled that for us, but we still look forward to learning precisely how things degenerate to that point for Stannis within the books. For now, we can appreciate the groundwork and the setting of the stage for tragedy, which all began with Crescent's dreary prologue. I never asked for this crown. Gold is cold and heavy on the head, but so long as I am the king, I have a duty. If I must sacrifice one child to the flames to save a million from the dark, sacrifice is never easy, Davos. Or it is no true sacrifice. Thanks so much for joining me today, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode all about Crescent and the burden of a maester's collar. We'll be back soon with another regular episode of Radio Westeros, but now it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for writing such nuanced tragedy, and to Kevin McLeod and Kai Angle for allowing us to use their music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron, and you could be hearing your name here too. Heartfelt thanks to Hortense of Shy, Jonah of House Haiko, Amber, Lenny, Sammy, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Tim, B-Word, Fatima, Girl with No Name, Catherine, Jill, Lady Silverwing, Dean, Eileen, Casey, Eliana Targaryen, Sasha, Alexis, Chris K, Marge of the Mage, John H, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, JM, the Mad Maester of Castle Black, Oxheart, Boss, Arrow Doe, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion, Theoden, Christian, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Blight Spirit, and Lady Direless of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to Alex, Ingvild, Hobbs, Kelly, Javi, Christian, Charitable Rereadings, Richard, Camille, Sylvia, 
Nessie the Questing Beast, Virginie, Stephen Stark, Rachel, Eric, Harry Krishna, Sir Galahoo of what? Matthew, Dutch Defender of the Berm, Lizzie, PJ, Simbobby Joe, Clay, Monaro Geek TV, Patrick, Scott, Goldie Juke, Clarissa, Lady Storch, Ezra, Joseph, Kevin, Danielle, Dennis, Emma, Judson, Jeffrey, Terry, Melissa, Maria, Ryan, Matthew, Emily of the Erie, Lady of the Frostfangs, and the Knight of the Laughing Tree. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all of our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there. Or find us on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, email, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a brand new episode. Bye for now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.